0: Welcome to Brain Buds Podcast. We are a podcast dedicated to making research and science accessible to everyone. Uh, I am your host, Drake, and our co-host, Kyle, is currently out on parental leave. He just had his first baby, baby Logan, uh, and he is nine days old as of recording. So congratulations to Kyle, we're super excited for him and his family and his beautiful wife, Colleen. Congratulations. Moving onwards, though, I am going to be continuing to do guests alone, and uh, we hope that's okay with you. Uh, I had the pleasure of talking to Lauren Whitehurst uh, about sleep and cognition today. We had an awesome hour-long chat about how people sleep, what the best amount of sleep is for individuals, you know, how, what sleep stages are. And, uh, and how it impacts your cognition and your attention and memory and just so much more. She also gives us tips and hints on you know, how to have the optimal nap or how to sleep well. Um, so please check this out. It was an awesome episode. If you haven't already, please do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening to us on, uh, on your phones and and do follow us on twitter facebook and instagram we are actively posting on twitter and instagram all the time uh, and we'd love the support and interaction from you guys because i just love hearing from whoever's listening to the podcast um so do do check out this episode uh leave us a like on facebook or apple podcast uh for this uh leave us a review if you can too uh and uh cheers enjoy the episode Welcome back to another episode of Brain BrainBuds Podcast. I hope that you got some reto- restorative sleep. Uh, we are with Dr. Lauren Whitehurst from the University of Kentucky. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology, and she is a cognitive neuroscientist that specializes in sleep research and cognition. Lauren, thanks for coming on. I'm super excited to have you. Oh, thank you
1: so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be with you both. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, well, just you today, actually.
0: Just <laughs> it's today. just me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so spoiler alert: Kyle's not here. Kyle just had a little baby boy. His first. First child with uh, his beautiful wife Colleen, and their baby Logan is, I guess, nine days old now. So he is very fresh, and he is very busy. So he will not be on a couple of the episodes coming for coming up because uh, babies take time and effort to to manage. So he's and they disturb and your sleep. That's absolutely correct. I'm sure his sleep is very disturbed right now. Uh, I should have I should have asked him how how much sleep he's been getting the last few weeks. It would have been perfect to add. Um, probably not as much as I am, um, Lauren. I have a lot of a lot of listeners that have been really interested in wanting me to talk about sleep with some researchers. So I'm super excited that I got to reach out to you on Twitter. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the work that you do uh, in sleep and cognition.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I usually liked. I mean. I'm basically under look at the way that our brains change during sleep and how it impacts our ability to think, learn and remember well. Um, So I study that in the context of kind of in lab experimental studies where we bring people into the lab and we hook them up to um, devices to look at brain activity. Um, And then we also do it in the in the world. Right. So we do things where we kind of have people track their sleep with either, you know, things like Fitbits or with diaries where they tell us kind of how much they're sleeping and try to understand how that's related to their kind of everyday life and their everyday activities. Uh, So we look at it from kind of various um, directions, but with the whole hope of trying to understand sleep better and understand its contribution to our general health.
0: Yeah, I, I, I know that like since I was probably 12 years old, people were pounding it in my head that sleep is really important. And, and now being a health psychologist, it's, it's, you know, it's one third of the most important things, right? It's like <laughs> sleep, uh, how you eat and how you exercise, right? Those are the yeah. big pillars of health. And often sleep is the one that gets neglected first out of those mm. right uh, maybe mm. exercise first I don't know if the, the numbers actually add up on that but wh- why why is that
1: yeah I mean I think there's so much I, I'm really happy that you've been hearing since you were 12 that's, that's <laughs> super important because I think there's so much about messaging and that comes from I think our broader social environments where you know there's things like you know you'll sleep when you're dead or you know mm. sleep is for the lazy you know mm. all of those types of messages that really drive people towards their what they believe to be their most productive selves um, and it really kind of washing over the idea that during sleep, we're really, we're super, bodies are super productive <laughs> and they're really trying to support, it starts to support us so that we can you know, live good waking lives as well.
0: Right. That's a really good point. And now that I I think about the messaging that I've seen a lot uh, throughout my young adulthood was like, you know, talking about all these superstar, like, uh, you know, Beyonce and Kanye Mm -hmm. West sleeping like four hours a night or less than that and like being super successful and that being the reason why. What do you think about those kind of anecdotes? Do you think those are harmful? Or do you think that like there's some validity in like, oh, people that sleep shorter hours can just get more work done and more effectively?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's, I personally would say it's harmful, but there is some truth to that. We all have a different sleep need, right? So mm-hmm. people do, we're not, you know, the, the kind of, um, standard everyone needs eight hours is a little bit a problem on our side as sleep scientists and, and psychologists and researchers. Our messaging on that side hasn't been so great, right? Mm-hmm. We, we should be more clear about the fact that we all have a individual sleep need and that varies across person. Um, but you shouldn't be shamed for the amount of sleep that your body requires, right? So we all yeah. need a certain amount of sleep and accessing it and getting it and making sure that we kind of make it a priority is some of the things that I do when I go and speak to community and do some community work. It's really about like making sleep a priority for you, just like you make your health a priority when it comes to, let's say, taking your medications or, you know, eating well, uh, mm-hmm. those types of things.
0: Yeah, honestly, like it's a really good point too. I feel like uh, as a I've always been uh, someone that sleeps in like a lot, like sleeps a lot, and I, I, not that I prioritize sleep, I'm not going to make myself holier than thou, but like, (laughs) I think it's I, I I blamed it to I picked I tagged it as laziness, but I think that's also messaging and that's how people have kind of perceived it, right? Like if you're getting nine hours of sleep and that's what your body needs or you've become accustomed to,
1: yeah, uh,
0: there's that that idea that like oh you need to sleep that long, like why don't you just drink more coffee or do this to supplement that.
1: Yeah, there's so much shame around. There's so much shame around how much you sleep or how much you don't sleep. Um, yeah. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I love studying it so much. Is because we all have a relationship to it, right? We all mm. have something that um, kind of tickles our fancy when it comes to sleep.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so before we jump in, Lauren,
1: yeah,
0: how much sleep do you get on a daily? Mm. <laughs> a daily
1: that's like <laughs> a good <question>. You know, <laughs> you know, I will say, as you know, there's some people that are psychologists or neuroscientists that do a lot of like me research that go and like study yeah. something that they struggle with and sleep has never been a struggle of mine. So I sleep well. Um, I sleep, um, my sleep need changes. It's something that everyone experiences depending on kind of the demands of my life at the time. But you know, on average, I probably, I get anywhere between seven and nine hours regularly Um, and I do prioritize it.
0: Mm, yeah no and uh, yeah prioritization is a really interesting thing and well, obviously that's probably gonna be a part of what we're talking about today but yeah. what so what does this is a global question again i'm just going to kind of keep it really broad what yeah. does good sleep sleep good sleep look like to mm-hmm. you as a sleep researcher
1: you know that is something that i am studying right right now in my lab <laughs> i don't know we don't know yeah. um sleep science is such a young young science like it emerged in like the mid 50s as something that we actually studied experimentally um it's a question why we sleep and what sleep would happen to us while we're sleeping is a question that's been around for the ages but starting to really understand it and then define it to have a, a kind of category of what is good sleep is something we're still working on in our community, um, in, yeah. in the science, in the sleep research science community. Um, but what, what will I say? I think that the best way to think about it is that you feel good when you wake up, right? Yeah. So that you have the amount of time set aside for yourself um, throughout your day and across the night um, that you sleep and you feel satiated when you wake up. That's, yeah. that's your body sign that you've slept enough, is yeah. that you wake up and you feel satiated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so that doesn't happen all the time though. But,
1: <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah.
0: So like how do we get that, you know, perfect balance where like every night you're kind of waking up perfectly and, you know, you're feeling restorative? I think that's an interesting question. Is it is stress I mean, sorry, mm-hmm. is uh is the sleep is the sleep research um how did it kind of develop? I know a lot of I know a lot of psychology research and just in general, research usually is um risk or averse uh, like looking Mm. at aversion first like what's the problem first before we look at what's the best way
1: things are working
0: you know what what's the problem with sleep would be what i would think was what the sleep labs were back in the day or like okay someone's not sleeping well they're snoring or they're you know they're they're not being able to sleep at all uh and so they're trying to figure out what the problem how to fix that not actually what how, how people are like getting the best sleep yeah. Is that what happened with sleep research? Is that how it kind of developed into what it is now?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. I would say it's it's kind of twofold. So how did, so the kind of father of sleep science, who we consider that to be, is this guy named Nathan, Nathaniel Kleitman, and he was a mm-hmm. researcher at the University of Chicago. And he was just honestly, fundamentally interested in sleep, <laughs> like really okay. just as a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and electroencephalography, basically being able to uh, to attach electrodes to the scalp, the, the kind of um, the emergence of that technology, it's really what launched sleep research, being able to kind of non-invasively measure what's happening in the brain during Mm -hmm. sleep. Um, But there is, going back to your point, kind of that, like, what's the problem? There was a really cool study that came out um, with this... uh, young kid, I think he was a college-age student, his name was Randy, um, and <laughs> he stayed up for 11 days and it was well publicized, media was there and one of um, Nathaniel Kleitman's students, William DeMint, who became kind of the, one of the like kind of really big sleep medicine um, father, forefathers pushing this idea that sleep really matters. Um, and he passed away actually recently. Um, went in measured sleep and took a whole bunch of like equipment and went to this guy's house Mm -hmm. and really like kind of, maximize that experiment? Like, what does it mean to stay up for 11 days? And how much do we as humans need sleep? Um, And so it was kind of twofold. It was like this kind of just natural scientific person who was really interested and curious about sleep as a phenomenon. And then some kind of like spectacle that really drove sleep to the kind of forefront of people actually thinking about, okay, what is happening in the brain? And why does it matter? And what happens when you don't get it?
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, how 11 days is just, it, does, it sounds unbelievable to me. Right, right. Do you do you know, this is like a stupid Guinness World Book of Records kind of question, yeah. do you know how long someone stayed awake? Like, do you know, as yeah. a sleep researcher, is that like something that everybody knows, like <laughs> how long someone stayed up?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know if I can speak for all sleep researchers, <laughs> um, but you know, I don't know. So I know that Randy has a record for a really long time and there's yeah. been people who have broken it, but it wasn't as well documented. So people, you know, and one thing that we also know that happened for Randy and happened for other people um, are these things called micro sleeps. And micro sleeps are basically when you really don't have conscious awareness of the fact that your brain is falling asleep. Um, Mm. And certain areas of your brain can fall asleep at different times, your whole brain is be asleep, but you can have these kind of micro and local sleeps that happen in the brain. Um, So even if you aren't like in that kind of Typical sleep posture where you're like resting, laying down and that, you, you know, you know that you kind of lost time for a second, even when that doesn't happen. We know that your brain can still persist with sleep. Right. Um, so it's really hard to say mm. how long people really stay awake because it varies and how, they might be having a ton of micro sleeps.
0: Right. Yeah. Their brain's like kind of like taking shifts.
1: That's <laughs> right. Exactly. It's shift work. Yeah. The brain is in shift work. That's
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I think of micro when you think of like a kid that's been staying up past their bedtime, they're like right. w- fall asleep with their eyes open, but it's probably <laughs> right. not the full case. Like It's close.
1: What, it's yeah. close. Yeah.
0: That's really, that's really interesting. So micro let's, let's talk about like regular sleep before we go. I, I don't think we'll yeah. go too deep into fully sleep deprived people, but like what, yeah. what, um, what makes someone sleep deprived? Like, what is mm-hmm. the what's going on with the brain, I guess? Or like, why do we need sleep? Because we mm-hmm. do it so often. I, th- I think it's a really like, it's it's such an interesting topic, because people just take it for granted that you fall, yeah. you're you literally going to bed for that's a third right. of the day. That's right. uh, and, and it's just something you do. So yeah. like, why do we sleep?
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and like, what does sleep deprivation kind of look like?
1: Yeah, that's such a big question and yeah. we don't know the answer yet. <laughs> so this is why I think sleep science is so fascinating, right? Because there's so many unanswered questions. What I like to call as a science, it's like this low hanging fruit um, where we still are trying to figure that out. Why do we sleep is an open question. There's some theories. Um, one of the theories is kind of what brought me into science is this idea that we sleep so that our bodies can kind of take the information that we learn throughout the day and store it, put it away and save it which we call consolidation so that we can be more adaptive when we are awake again. Right. So you can imagine if we didn't have memory, if we didn't remember any of the experiences that we had, we would be really inefficient beings, right? Um, We would just, you know, we would, probably die pretty quickly because we would have no memory of all of the harm that the world has for us. Um, right, It would all be so, working
0: memory, right? Like just right. was in front of you right now is what you can remember. It's what you hold
1: on to, right? And so right. without having kind of systems that protect you, a whole species of individuals running around like that would not last very long. Right. Um, so so one thing that we know our bodies and our brains are really good for is that memory, right? It, it happens when you think about uh, vaccinations, right? Part of that is like immunological memory. Our body's creating a response and sleep right. seems to be really important for that. Um, are also our natural memory kind of for events that happen throughout our lives. Sleep seems to be really important for that. So one of the hypotheses is that sleep is really um, a time where we can put information away, store it, so that we're more adaptive when we wake up later. Um, Mm. There's other theories around kind of energy maintenance and mobilization such that we're really kind of highly active and using a lot of energy when we're awake and when we're asleep we kind of restore that energy um kind of more than metabolic levels um so there's tons of different theories but we haven't had enough science to say this is what this is why we do it we just don't know yeah
0: yeah so there's like different advantages to sleeping obviously right so like you that your body's actually restoring but mm-hmm. then also there's those a lot of cognitive benefits to sleeping with like memory and co- memory consolidation and, and all that all that. Yeah. I I know everybody does this. I do it too. Yeah. And it makes sense now, you know, saying that memory is a big part of sleep because I feel like as soon as you become horizontal and you're ready mm-hmm. to sleep, you start to ruminate and think about all the day's activities mm-hmm. and that's just like where your brain goes. Yeah. Is that a, is, is that a coincidence?
1: Yeah, that's so interesting. <laughs> you know, I I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's a fantastic question. Um, Is that a coincidence? Um, You know, it just seems like
0: that's where you, when you start to think about all the days and like, or like what's coming up next and planning and memory. Like, I feel like you saying that just kind of brought like that question out of me. I know it's not a fair question.
1: No, I think it's really cool. I think so. What? Okay. So how can I speak to that question? What I will say is that there's this um, this kind of going high running hypothesis of what we call memory reactivation. And what that means is that as we're learning throughout our day, walking around in the world where our kind of neurons are encoding that behavior and how do we get to this place where we have that memory kind of instantiated and consolidated and really solid so that when we need it later, we can source it Mm -hmm. is this process of reactivation where neurons kind of replay that same experience in the brain during times of kind of quiet during times when you're not so active and not so engaged. Um, So when you say things like, Oh, what happens when we're ruminating before we go to sleep? Well, it might be the neurons are starting to replay that action, that behavior, that life. And then when you fall asleep, it continues that process of replay or reactivation. And then that is what kind of consolidates that memory. And so we know that's one of the things that happens during sleep, but Mm -hmm. it might like what you're, what you're insinuating. is like, Hmm, maybe it's happening before you go to sleep Mm -hmm. and you're kind of biasing those networks to do that. So that right. when you're sleeping, you have, you know, kind of, you're working things out, you're getting insight into problems, or you're, you know, you're ruminating over the things that cause you the most concern of your life. And then hopefully, when you wake up in the morning, you have some insight.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really, it, that's really cool. I, I like, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think <laughs> it's an interesting, I, you know, the quiet portion of that you're talking about how it's just like a quiet time yeah. I think of how stimulated we are I, I was recently visiting a friend who just had a baby as well and they talked about mm-hmm. how they couldn't put the tv on because the baby would just be like focused completely on the mm-hmm. tv and it made me it made us realize like how stimulated we are as yeah. adults and humans you know you'll have a tv running or you'll have like uh, you know music playing and just constant stimulation so once you stop that mm-hmm. uh, your brain's finally got a time to time to think about what what happened all day
1: that's right that's
0: uh, right it's, yeah it's think, really like, cool i think you're on
1: something you're on something there for sure yeah, the and, babies, the, and there's I mean... definitely there's definitely science that has shown that like yeah when you ruminate on something or you give your mind time to kind of think about it and, and kind of work through that process you on the other side of that you have more insight so it, there is and that can happen across sleep, that can also happen just in times of rest and quiet. So yeah. um that that there is something there for sure. Yeah,
0: definitely. And I, I, I did I did a bit of rumination research in my uh master's master's work but uh, yeah. it also you know reflection is a big part i don't want people to make it make it sound like it's just negative cuz rumination is not right. always negative right that's there's right. also reflection within that where you're thinking about like positive things of the day and i think that's, that's right. a big part of sleep too right you that's go right. think about an awesome day you're not going to be ruminating on, on how bad it was yeah, you reflect right. on it that's
1: right um, and i think that's right i think that we you t- we typically associate rumination with negative negative self thought but um, mm. it doesn't have to always be that right it no. can just be replaying the day's activities
0: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm all over the map because this, this research is just cool. And yeah. Lauren, you're, you're doing awesome at just like <laughs> bouncing off the walls with me. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before we get into like, you know, the, more into sleep, of course. Yeah. Um, you talked about how you measure things. Uh, yeah. How good is I have a Fitbit on right now. So yeah. how good is the Fitbits of the world's or the other monitors? How good are they? in your opinion, at measuring sleep and what, you know, what variables are you really interested in as a sleep researcher when it comes to like measuring sleep?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, that's a good question. So um, when we can do, when we can do the, the best we can do, right? So the top line, the gold standard is what we mm. call polysomnography and polysomnography is basically when we attach electrodes to different parts of your brain, as well as your body. That's where the poly comes from multi-signal. Um, and then somno means sleep and graphy is kind of the the recording Mm -hmm. um and so we attach these electrodes to get multiple signals from your body um and that's the gold standard that you have to do in a sleep lab it requires kind of some expertise Mm -hmm. Um, then we there's other devices that also have electrodes, maybe one or two, that are on the market that you can buy um, that also record activity from your brain. Um, because sleep is a state of the brain, it's a conscious state that neurons change, they're their firing patterns associated with your consciousness. Um, measuring brain activity is by far the gold standard. Um, so there's kind of levels of that yeah. And then when you start to think about what else happens, what's one of the ways that we kind of quantify sleep is that there's neural activity that changes, but there's also kind of postural activity that change. Um, there's usually kind of specific lights um, in the environment that you get that, that's there or not there that changes. So kind of how bright your environment is can really be a proxy for whether someone's sleeping or awake. Um, how much movement your body is doing can be a proxy for how Somebody's sleeping or awake, or what stage of sleep they might be in. Um, so these like wrist devices really kind of capture that postural change in that movement change um, that we always see across sleep. And so they do okay, they're not great because they're not capturing also that neural activity, but they are not they're not bad in that you know typically when people sleep they have a very specific posture. You lay down on your back or on your side or on your tummy, right? Like you kind of go into that space that's really nice and comfortable. You have very little movement, especially of your extremities, you move your fingers and your arms very little. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do move, it's kind of like burst of movement. It's kind of like, I'm a rollover, but I'm going to fall back to sleep. Right. And then I'm going to like, yeah. you know, pull my, my blanket up, but then I'm going to go back to sleep. And that is re- those wrist devices are really good at tracking that and saying, okay, this person's likely sleeping in, in this kind of this, this, because of this posture and because of this amount of light they have in their environment. Um, So they're, so they're decent at that. Um, But like I said, the stages, a lot of times the devices also say, oh, you're in deep sleep right now, or you're in rapid eye movement sleep right now, or you're in light sleep. Um, And they're just basing that off of that movement in your wrist or your muscle activity, which isn't, which is a proxy, but it's not, it's not very highly correlated with what could be happening in the brain. Um, So I think when I think about these devices, it's, it's, good to have an idea, especially if you're comparing to yourself over time, right? It's like, okay, for me, I know I, my watch that I slept this well yesterday, I slept this well tonight, and then hopefully tomorrow I'll be somewhere around there. Um, yeah. So if you're, if you're sleeping well, and your device is telling you that over time, that's probably nice. And if you have big deviations from it, that's also something you can take into consideration. What did I do right. last night that maybe not sleep so good? Yeah. Um, but comparing across people is a little bit more difficult. Um, and really trying to say like, what is this activity really telling me? Um, yeah, you want to be careful about that.
0: Right. It's all kind of within yourself. I think that's a really good, that's a really interesting way to see it. I think now uh, I I don't trust the calories burnt on these Fitbits either. So I'm (laughs) like, maybe that's what, like I take it with a grain of salt. Like it's going to give you an indication of where you're at, but not exactly how, you know, how quality or, or how much you've, you've burnt. Right. That's
1: the perfect summary. Yeah. No.
0: Awesome. That's really cool. Let's talk about the sleep stages because you mentioned them and, you know, what's the, what you're really trying to measure as a sleep researcher. So what are the sleep stages?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So, um, our activity in our brain changes across the day and it changes in relationship to kind of external things, but also internal changes. And so as our, when we fall asleep, our brain activity changes in very kind of specific weights. Um, and what we've been able to do with electroencephalography, that technology allowed us to look and see how our brain activity, specifically coming from neuronal firing, changes. Um, and so what that has allowed us to do is kind of take that and put it into kind of profiles of activity that are, in a sense, kind of um, repeated across the night. And so we have a couple of different stages of sleep. The first is stage one sleep, which is this very light stage of sleep. It's kind of that transition from wakefulness to going into kind of this lack of consciousness, less conscious state. Um, you're super, you can wake up from stage one very easily. It's kind of what happens when you're like really sleepy. Let's say you're sitting in class and you didn't sleep good the, the last night and you kind of like nod off and jump back up. That's oh, a good indication of stage one sleep. The
0: right? worst feeling. Yeah, exactly.
1: I like hope, <laughs> hope nobody saw that. Like, you know, that. That's a stage one. Okay. Um, And then stage two sleep. um, And I should say, as I'm talking about these stages, you're getting progressively deeper. Mm -hmm. So stage two sleep is a slightly deeper stage of sleep. In this stage, you're really losing kind of conscious awareness. You really kind of check out from the external environment. And during this stage, we have very kind of stereotypical neuronal firing patterns that are associated with the kind of silencing of the external environment and the kind of communication between brain regions. Um, And so we we look for that in the EEG when we enter stage two sleep. And what's really nice about stage two sleep is that that's like one of the, th- the phases that you want when you want to get a really good nap. That's going to be really good for your attention and your okay. focus. You want to have a nap that has stage two sleep. And I might be able to give you guys, will give you some tips later on how to get a good stage Sweet. two nap. <laughs> Love it.
0: Um,
1: and then, so then after stage two sleep, you will go into stage three sleep, um, which we also call slow wave sleep. And that stage one, stage two, and stage three, or slow wave sleep, make up what we call non-rapid eye movement sleep. Okay. And stage three sleep is the deepest stage of non-rapid eye movement sleep. And it's when your brain, the neuronal firing in your brain really slows down to this really slow rhythm. And not only is it a slow, slow kind of firing pattern of the electric the, the um neurons in your brain, it also is synchronized. And what that means is that the neurons in your brain, specifically in your cortex, are firing at the same time. And they're also silenced at the same time. So they're really kind of in tune with each other, yeah. which is really cool. And it really sets up a really nice stage for some of that memory stuff that we talked about before. Your brain regions are kind of talking to each other at the same time, which is nice. Okay, Interesting. Um, that's that's yeah. the
0: REM sleep, right? That's what you so call REM?
1: So that's slow wave sleep. Now we're going to get to REM. Yeah, that's slow okay, wave now sleep. Now you're going to REM. So that's not even REM okay. yet. Okay, that's not gotcha. REM yet. Yeah. So slow wave sleep, that's the last kind of deepest stage of non-rapid eye movement sleep okay. or non-REM sleep. Okay. And what's really cool. So with slow, with slow wave sleep, it's the stage where you have like the highest growth hormone. So it's the stage that's the most reparative for your body. Um, it's the this, this stage that your body craves when you're sick. So if you have any sort of virus or any sort of sickness, your body's going to crave a lot of that. Um, mm. If you work out really hard, you're going to, your body's going to try to repair itself with growth hormones, and that's going to take a lot of slow wave sleep. So it's the stage that you get when you're kind of, it's the most restorative of them all. Let's say that. Okay, And then we go to rapid eye movement sleep, which is like the rock star of sleep. Everyone Absolutely knows is. about REM, One right? <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows about REM. Um, and yeah. that's what we call rapid eye movement sleep. And um, what happens during rapid eye movement sleep is the reason why we call it that is because you your eyes literally move back and forth, basically. And you've probably seen it with your dog, right? When they're right. sleeping, you see yeah, their eyes yeah, yeah. like go back and forth Um, and rapid eye movement sleep is really different than those other stages what happens in REM sleep is your neural activity actually increases compared to non-REM sleep it's almost your brain is almost as active during that stage as it is when you're awake Um, so you are completely kind of cut off from the external environment you're completely internal but your, brain, yeah. but your brain is actually really highly active. Neurons are firing at a really high rate and they're very desynchronized. Um, and what we think REM sleep is really about is kind of taking the information that you've learned throughout the day. Let's say you stored it away during non-REM sleep during REM sleep, you're actually trying to put together new associations. You're saying, you know, this but that I learned, you know, two, three years ago might go with that new stuff that I just had that I just figured out today. Yeah. So you're kind of putting together new associations. It's really a good state for creativity, yeah. for insight. Um, you have this really increased firing patterns associated with kind of these new networks communicating with each other, which is really nice and fun. In um, wow. REM sleep, like I said, is where you have kind of some of the, the, the rock side of sleep. And that's kind of what we the reason why we know it is because you have some of your most fantastical dreaming during REM. So all it's right. the stage where you have like the dreams where you're flying or your nightmares. A lot of those happen during REM.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but fun, fun fact, you can actually dream in all of the stages of sleep. So REM is not the only stage that you dream in. You can dream in all of them
0: controversial that's controversial
1: <laughs> it's, that, it's I, that's I science that.
0: that's just science that's cool okay so, yeah. so explain that to me because I think I took a sleep and dreams class wow I don't know like seven years ago yeah uh, in undergrad and they're like I ah, don't we don't really know but like yeah. everybody's like I feel like I've slept I've I've dreamt but it's like they're like oh no it's just like uh, neural firings, not dreams. Yeah.
1: Okay. So that's, so I see what you, why you said controversial. So <laughs> dreaming, so dreaming is really the way that I think the, the field interprets dreams right now, yeah. at least the common kind of consensus is that it is random firing that right. is extending from some of our more kind of, um, the earlier parts of our brain, so kind of our brain stem, the the kind of earlier parts of our kind of evolutionary brains. Um, yeah. And then our kind of human aspects of our brain, our prefrontal cortex is taking that kind of random firing and applying meaning to it, right? So we know that our neuronal firing is associated with our consciousness. It's associated with us making sense of the world. And so then our our kind of more rational areas of our brain take that random firing and apply meaning to it. And so that is the kind of general understanding of what dreams are. But what's really cool about it is that we do that in all of those stages of sleep. It's just in REM sleep, the brain regions that are kind of more active are the ones that are associated with kind of fear and um, associated with kind of those, like, you know, those emotional centers.
0: Mm. Interesting. Okay, that's really cool. I I, I vibe with that. I mean, (laughs) seven years ago, I was like, neural firings? This is is exactly (laughs) what dreams sound like. So that's a really cool explanation of what dreams really are because i mean every i mean not everybody has them but some people have them more than more than others um but i think that's you know you're always trying to attach meaning so sometimes the meaning is like whatever your brain's trying to make of it which is also could have meaning behind it because you're forcing (laughs) it into that slot maybe
1: that's right that's right and so i will say that i would i would controversial again maybe but i will say that everyone dreams regardless if you remember them or not Yeah. Some of our dreams are super mundane. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, you'll dream about sitting in the chair at your kitchen table or your dream about doing like, you know, brushing your teeth. Right. And those we call kind of more like thought like dreams. They're just kind of like if you were just sitting around daydreaming or thinking about whatever, um, that's the type of dream that you're having at night. And then you have your more kind of fantastical dreams that are like the really cool ones. And we only really think that those are dreams. But actually, all of that, all of the thinking that happens during sleep is still dreaming.
0: Yeah. So with with um, dreams, why is it that when you have a dream and you say you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, that dream was insane. I will never forget that dream ever again. <laughs> And then you go back to sleep. And then by the time you wake up again, you're like, what the hell did I dream about? Yeah. Yeah. So
1: what, what's,
0: what's going on with our memory? Is it just because the dreams are just random firings and it's not really necessary to consolidate that memory that it's there. Like that's why mm-hmm. people have dream books. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's right, exactly right. So people sometimes they'll wake up in the middle of the night and they'll write that dream down. So they don't yeah. lose it. And it's really just the way that our brains are, are, they're super kind of flexible and malleable during that REM state where we have those really big, fantastical dreams. Mm-hmm. such. So sh- So that if you don't have an awakening where you can actually put some meaning or interpretation to it, then the next big fantastical thing is going to just kind of come and interfere with what you were just, yeah, what you were just experiencing. Or it doesn't even have to be big and fantastical. Just the next thought that you, that comes into your head is going to interfere. Um, So, but I will say that I think part of the function of REM sleep is to kind of um, allow us to work out some of those, you know, experiences and some of those things that we have, it allows us to kind of play with the proxy worlds in a sense, mm. kind of play out these different interpretations of the world, such so yeah. so that when we are existing in the world and we have kind of to, to apply our, um, our interpretations to our reality. So when we are awake, um, we've kind of already played with it a little bit during dreaming, right? We kind of already yeah. went through some of those things. So we we might have a little bit more of a, a better approach this time now coming around yeah. when we're awake.
0: Absolutely. That's really cool. I think like when you're really focused on the way that you're sleeping and what you're doing for your like sleep hygiene, I find when I was taking that course, I started to do lucid dreaming because I was focused Mm -hmm. on like really thinking about what I was doing when I was going to bed, when I was going to bed and giving myself that time. I think it's just such a cool thing to do is to really give yourself and focus on improving your sleep. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, let's talk about what does optimal sleeping look like? Mm -hmm. Um, and does it look the same across children, young adults, mm. and older adults? Like, are, yeah. should we all be getting the same kind of sleep, like you said, mm. like seven to nine hours?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, and the short answer is absolutely not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, what does good sleep look like? I, like I said before, it's hard to define it, but if we go back to those stages that I was talking about, you want kind of each of those stages in your night of sleep, you want them to kind of recur. So the way that we sleep at night is that we have these kind of 90 minute episodes of each of those stages of sleep and then it repeats itself, and it repeats itself um, over and over until you wake up. So you have 90 minute episodes with all of those non-rim stages, and then those rim state, that rim stage, and then it repeats itself. And then you do that like four or five times in any given seven hours, eight hour night. And so you want that. You want to have that repetition. You want to have those sleep stages. You want to have that overnight, over your, over your night of sleep. Um, and then you want to have enough that when you wake up, you feel satiated. That is going to fundamentally change across the lifespan so when we're thinking about infants they require you know yeah. as your as your as your co-host would know <laughs> they, they could get a lot of sleep when they're first born 18 yeah. hours of the day they spend sometimes sleeping yeah. um, and then what we do think is that one of the other theories we talked a little bit earlier about how there's a lot of different theories about why we sleep one of them is that sleep is really important for neural development so young children, infants, even fetuses, embryos, they, they have the kind of uh, variations of what we call our non-REM and rim sleep stages while they're in utero. And what you see is that that changes across development such that once you're around, you know, adulthood, you're sleeping roughly seven to nine hours, whereas you started sleeping 18, 14, 16, and it starts to decline with age. Right. Um, so we think that sleep's really important in kind of developing our, our neural networks, having those kind of cortical connections, making sure that the neuronal firing and it's communicating with each other, our brain um, kind of networks have some integrity to them. And we think sleep's really important for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you age, you need less of it because your brain develops, your neuron, your circuitry is there. And so you need a little bit less of it. So as when she starts to get into adulthood, you're sleeping kind of more to seven and seven hours compared to that 18 that you're sleeping when you're an infant. And then as you get into older adulthood, a lot of times sleep declines to roughly around six hours or so. Right. Um, But I should say that you still want that non-REM and REM sleep and those cycles across the night. And you want multiple of them, even though you're getting less of it as you age.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really cool. So so keeping those 90 minute windows where we're getting all four of those stages is really important. Mm -hmm. I know that there's there were previously I know it's pretty much assumed that everybody's kind of just, you know, hammering out these seven to nine hours at night what about the people that are doing you know the midday naps and and, and other things what do you think about that and is that like an appropriate way to accumulate your sleep
1: absolutely yeah so that's a great question and i get this question a lot because i feel like there's like we were talking earlier about kind of the shame around how much sleep people need and that comes i feel like Full oh, throttle when you start talking oh, about naps, right? Yes. Yeah, one hundred. Exactly, exactly. So I love naps. I am a napper. <laughs> um I try to, I probably take like one or two naps a week. Um and I'm such a fan of them. Um, but they are tricky. They are tricky. So we talked about those ninety minute cycles where you get all of those sleep stages. Um, and that would still happen if you took a nap. So if you took a nap in the middle of the day, you would get a 90 minute sleep cycle that would be made up of those sleep stages, um, dependent on when you took your nap. So sleep is kind of regulated by different um, kind of biological actors. And so one of them is is the circadian rhythm and parts in our brain that are really in tune with our outside or external world, specifically if the the sun is up or not. Um, And so if you take a nap early in the morning, you're going to have a lot of that REM sleep based off of the circadian cycling. And if you take a nap late in the evening, you're going to have a lot of that slow wave deep sleep that makes you kind of feel groggy when you wake up from it. Um, and so when you take a nap, when you take it in the day, is going to be really, really important for how that nap is going to be for you. Um, so one thing that, so one thing that really drives you to sleep every day, it's called our homeostatic drive for sleep um, is your drive to get more slow wave sleep. Right. So slow-wave sleep is that restorative part. It really kind of builds your body back up. And if you take a nap late in the evening and you have a lot of slow-wave sleep, it's going to be really hard to go back to sleep at night because you've already kind of taken away some of that slow-wave sleep that you needed. So sometimes people say like, yeah, I, I love naps. So when I take a nap, I can't sleep for like, I can't sleep until 3am. Well, mm-hmm. that's why, because you took yeah. a nap later in the evening. I would say any nap after if you're, if you're falling asleep anytime after 1 to 2 p.m. You're going to have a nap with a lot of slow-wave sleep, right? Um, it's okay. I should say going to sleep around 1 30 and 2 p.m. is fine, but, um, waking up, you want to wake up, you know, before 3 30, let's say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cause
0: then you're, then you're like, you've got that slow-wave sleep that's accumulated, but then it's gonna be harder to get into that slow-wave whenever you go to sleep at th- night. That's then. right.
1: Your body's not going to really crave it as much cause you've already gotten enough of it for a period of time. Um, and, so it's going it, to take longer it, to build up.
0: And so does it transition like, evenly every time in in each each 90 minute segment is it like okay you get a little bit of this then you get the same amount of the of stage two second stage three is the same length is it usually pretty like you know it's
1: a a great question and it feeds right into what we're talking about hmm. so what you see is when you first fall asleep at night let's say you fall asleep around 11 p.m yeah um when you first fall asleep at night the first two to three cycles 90 minute cycles of your sleep are going to have a good amount of slow wave sleep in them and you're going to have progressively less slow-wave sleep as you go through your cycles. So the earlier morning cycles at, say, 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m. in the early morning when you're sleeping, you have almost no slow-wave sleep. Your body has said, like, I had enough of that. I'm good. I'm satiated. And you start to have a lot more REM sleep. Um, stage 2 sleep doesn't is really pretty much the same across all cycles. You have about the same amount of stage 2 sleep. But what changes is either your slow-wave sleep and your REM
0: so, so which one's the biggest that, is it this stage three, like the slow wave that's usually the largest or is it the REM?
1: So of your 90 minutes, stage two sleep, is actually the largest. So oh, stage, stage two, two. yeah. Okay. Stage, so you basically have a little bit of stage one when you first fall asleep, then you go it, transition to stage two sleep. And that kind of makes up the mo- the majority of your night of sleep. About 60% of your sleep at night is stage two okay. sleep. And then okay. you have about 20% that's going to be slow wave sleep, mainly chunked in the beginning part of your night. Yeah. And then about 20% that's going to be REM sleep, mainly like chunked in the earlier morning. Right. That's
0: right. And that's what, yeah. And then as you said, that's why we're kind of getting those dream. We're thinking we're dreaming a lot near the end of the, right. uh, in the mornings, because that's when you're waking up and you're kind of out of the REM sleep a lot more often. Right. That's
1: right. I think that's exactly and,
0: right. And when you wake up and, and, and when you wake up, like uh, say you wake up abruptly, do you get mm-hmm. back into that REM sleep quicker if you're later in the night?
1: That's right. Yeah. So yeah. if you wake up, you have some awakenings, you're likely will fall back into that same st- stage of sleep that you just woke up from, especially if it's a quick one. It's a quick yeah. awakening. You just kind of wake up really quickly. You'll likely fall right back into that stage that you were just in.
0: Yeah. Cause I, and, I, and I think a lot of people have trouble getting into sleep at the first, you know, as as they're laying down, getting mm-hmm. into bed at night, right? Say if it's yeah. 11 o'clock. I, I think of last night, I, I just moved. So I had pictures on the wall and one fell off in the middle of the night at like Mm 3am and I was I was back asleep within like less than a minute right (laughs) but it took me it takes me you know 15 minutes 20 minutes to get to sleep yeah is that the same for everybody like is that is that just like typical sleeping like behavior where it's the first one's the worst and then it it just gets easier because you're like you're already into that REM sleep cycle and you're kind of like your brain's ready to get back into it?
1: It actually varies for people quite a bit. There's two main ways you can have difficulty sleeping. The first is what you just explained, kind of falling asleep at night, yeah. um, kind of engaging sleep initially is hard for some people. Um, and, and again, I'm talking about specifically people who have a kind of really sh- struggle with sleep. Right. And then the other thing is maintenance. So that is kind of what you were talking about that like 3am something falls and you wake up due to that, that something falling and mm-hmm. your body has a much harder time going back to sleep after you have initial initial awakening
0: oh that um, would be problematic I yeah
1: know exactly so there's different types and those are actually called those are those are different types of insomnia really so you right. have kind of maintenance insomnia and then you also have kind of that engaging insomnia so where it takes a while for you to engage sleep or it takes you it's harder for you to maintain sleep once you've engaged it
0: right Wow. I, not, I haven't really thought, I, I know of insomnia as like the engaging insomnia makes sense because mm-hmm. I really like, can't get to sleep at night and I have that, like, right. insomnia. The maintenance insomnia just sounds awful. You <laughs> right? know, waking up the like you were, oh yeah. It's just like, <laughs> all right, I, gotta go, I got a little bit of sleep and now I can't get back to bed and it's 3am. What do you do? Kind of thing. Like make right. you have to kind of, you know, figure out tasks to put yourself back to sleep. Oh, it just sounds like a nightmare. That's right. Um, <laughs> um Okay, well, this is really cool. I've got so much stuff. We got to keep going. I, okay. I, I we get caught up on this uh, dreams. We know a lot about the sleep stages. I think that is awesome. You just kind of basically took me through a whole intro, a like, uh, whole course of sleep and dreams. There, that's awesome, Lauren. Um, so so about your work though, your work, you specifically look at you know perturb- perturbations of mm-hmm. sleep, and you and you mentioned that you look at how drugs and stress mm-hmm. and discrimination can impact yeah. sleep health. Yeah. So so how As soon as I read that, Lord, I was like, "Okay, nineteen-year-old Drake, twenty-year-old Drake, used to drink a lot more beer than twenty-eight-year-old Drake." Right, right. And and I don't feel like I—I mean, this might just be me looking back with rose-colored glasses, but I feel like I woke up pretty energized after Mm. having way too many drinks that night. But I shudder at the thought now of doing the same thing. If I have more than three beers, I'm in trouble, right? So and I and I know my sleep's affected. Yeah. So what's going on with drug use? And then mm-hmm. I mean, let's talk. Let's talk a lot more about stress and discrimination because I think that's a really cool line yeah. of work. Yeah. What's going on with like our sleep quality when it comes to drinking and drug use? And then yeah. let's talk about stress, stress discrimination.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, that's one of the things that like that got me interested in sleep um, was just kind of the interaction of sleep with so many behaviors, right? Like it's yeah. it's not um, it's one of those things that you can, that gets affected by so much, but then also affects so much of your next day, right? So when you don't get good sleep, you're like, oh, yeah. and then that creates a whole kind of onslaught of behaviors and activities that might impact your sleep again. So mm-hmm. um, when it comes to the drug use, a lot of the work that I've done looking at psychopharmacology and the impact of kind of how drugs impact our, um, our cognition and then how that, how drugs impact sleep and how that kind of, those three things interact with, with each other or interplay with each other is really asking a very simple question, right? Like a lot of times people turn to drugs to help them do whatever it is, right? They want they, especially when you think about caffeine. Yes. Um, a lot of my work has looked at different types of psychostimulants, like uh, Adderall and Ritalin. People kind of turn to those drugs to be like, man, if I just take one, I just pop this one Adderall, I'll be yeah. able to study, or I'll be able to get through this thing, right? I'll um, be able to stay
0: up for 11 days straight. Right? Like, right?
1: And they're just like, I can just be so productive. <laughs> and for me, it was like, well, what's the cost of that productivity, right? We yeah. turn to these behaviors and we're like, we want to be productive. but What's the cost of that? Um, yeah. And so I have a whole line of work really asking that question. What's the cost of drugging? use on sleep. And then what's the cost for the the thing that you really wanted was this kind of better productivity, this cognitive ability. Um, And so uh, what I found is that even when you take these drugs early in the morning, so you can imagine in this case, we were looking at um, dextroamphetamine, which is a stimulant um, that's very much like Adderall and Ritalin. Um, You take this early in the morning, 9am, we still see effects on your sleep when you go to bed at 11pm that night. Um, you're, You're losing about 30 minutes of sleep. And that 30 minutes is impactful. People think like, oh, whatever, 30 minutes, no big deal. So that 30 minutes is impactful is that you're performing worse on memory tasks the next day. Um, You also, not just uh, long-term memory, kind of declarative memory, but also working memory. You're not as good at kind of learning the kind Mm. of task-related kind of nuances when you're using these stimulants and impacting your sleep. Um, Wow,
0: the next day. The next day,
1: yeah.
0: That's that's quick. That's a quick effect
1: yeah exactly and then also if we think about um kind of i have one of the people that i that i've collaborated with over over the years um has looked at kind of caffeine and how that impacts impacts sleep and caffeine has a very long half-life right so it feels like it's in your body and then it's you're done you need another shot of it but it actually stays in your body for quite a bit of time and so that can that can also impact your sleep and have some cognitive consequences as well so there's there's a lot of work around that but let's talk about alcohol that's what you asked about um (laughs) so what's fun about alcohol and um is that you it has this kind of uh masking ability so it masks itself as if it's going to help you sleep right oh man i drink a beer it relaxes me i feel good i can go to bed um but it goes back to that problem we were talking about before. before initiating sleep is one thing but then maintaining sleep is something different and so what we find is that when individuals drink alcohol before sleep or drugs that kind of act in similar ways to alcohol they end up with more awakenings throughout the night in less restful sleep as a result of that, which has all these kind of next day implications when it comes to, you know, driving to work or, you know, doing other things that require cognition. Um, so that's something that we find is that yeah, you end up falling asleep quite quickly with things like alcohol or other drugs that are similar, but you end up waking up a lot more throughout the night, even if you don't even if you don't consciously remember waking up, your body does wake up more um, and your brain wakes up more, which has these kind of long term long-term consequences.
0: Mm. anecdotally I remember not <laughs> I mean waking up a ton so this yeah, makes sense so right. it wasn't like it was the most restful sleep but I felt yeah. like yeah I think that's an interesting uh you know comparison or a point th- that you said is like you know your cognition's affected the next day and like driving mm-hmm. um I know that a lot of people like they they're like oh I might I might be still drunk but it's, mm-hmm. they might not be the case maybe they're just their just cognitions are impacted and it's not that they're the, it's in their system. It's just that their sleep was so impacted that they're actually right. performing worse.
1: You know, that's a really good point because there's a, there's a study um, that came out. It had to have been maybe even ten years now, um, where they actually compared directly compared sleep deprivation to to alcohol use. And what they found was that you know with alcohol use, the longer you go from the time that you drink, whatever your you get your BAC to a certain level, the longer you go from the time that you drink, the more sober you will become over time. However, with sleep, the longer you go from the longer and longer you go, the more and more sleep deprived you become. So the idea that, you know, you'll actually if you wait long enough, you can drive after you have drank, But when you're sleep deprived, there's no amount of time you have to sleep. You have to sleep to be able to drive. And the types of um, kind of uh, deficiencies you see with cognition when you're drunk versus sleep deprived are actually quite similar. You see a lot of similar deficiencies to your cognition.
0: Yeah. And then you start mixing those things in, right? You you, you got overworked students, overworked people with caffeine in their system, going drinking and then not sleeping well. And then, you know, doing other things the next day could just be a disaster.
1: Yeah. I think I, we always call it like the, the, the double drugs, right? Like the uppers and the downers, right? So you take drink caffeine all day to keep you up and focus. And then you're like, I got to take some, drink some alcohol to like calm me down at night. And Mm -hmm. obviously uh, there's some clear consequences to that, that type of behavior. But when it comes to your sleep, that can be quite
0: detrimental absolutely I mean that's really that's a really interesting point um let's talk stress then yeah this is like I I love I love the idea of how sleep interacts with people's moods and their emotions on a day-to-day basis some people seem so reactive Mm -hmm. to you know not having a good night's sleep or it's or it's often the scapegoat I think Mm. for issues or negative mood, like, Oh, I just didn't get a good sleep last night. So I'm going to be a dick all day. (laughs) Um, Maybe, maybe you can persuade me into thinking (laughs) differently here, but like how, how much, you know, how does stress uh, impact your sleep and how does sleep impact your stress? I guess.
1: Yeah. It's a vicious cycle. Honestly, it's one of those things where if you don't get enough sleep, I will say, um, everyone has a different sleep need, right? So, and everyone is like, you you, you said it perfectly. Everyone has a different reactivity to their, to their loss of sleep. Um, so some people who are kind of more sensitive or sleep kind of bolsters their emotions and their moods in certain ways, and they don't have that. Yeah, they're going to seem like they're, they're jerks, right? <laughs> like these people are like, jerks. We've yeah. all encountered those types of books. You um, have
0: all been that person. At some point. right? We've all encountered yeah.
1: them, and we've all been them. Um, but yeah, it's a vicious cycle. So that can also, when you when you don't get enough sleep, um, it can lead to kind of these mood issues. But also, experiencing stress or a negative emotion can also impact your sleep. And that goes back to our earlier part of our conversation, talking about rumination. Yeah. We talked about it kind of in this, you know, sense of like, you know, replaying your day. But if what you're replaying are these negative emotions and these negative experiences, that can lead to literally hyper arousal in the body. That's going to make yeah. it really hard to engage a safe enough place for your mind and your body to feel like it can rest. And you need that in order to get good sleep. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really, if they're, if they can impact each other. It's very bidirectional. Mm -hmm. Um, but how I approach that work and the questions that I've asked is that I spent so much of my time really trying to understand, you know, what about sleep matters for cognition and when it, we hurt sleep, what does it mean for cognition? And I, you know, walked away saying like, oh, well, it matters a lot. (laughs) And when we hurt it, it has these really large impacts. Um, and so then I kind of flipped that question on its head and said, well, what happens when people are unable to get access to sleep? What happens when you can't have when you don't get good sleep? And that led me to these kind of conversations around marginalization and discrimination and what it means to feel unsafe in in your environment. And what does it mean to kind of exist in this kind of chronic stress space where your body is unable to relax and engage with sleep? What does that mean for your cognition? What does that mean for your health? Um, And these are very new questions that my lab is just starting to ask. Um, I asked some of that um, in my previous position at the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm bringing a lot of that to my lab here at University of Kentucky. And so we're asking those questions now.
0: Awesome. Do you mind, uh, you know, is it, is it top secret information? <laughs> can I, can I, can I probe a bit here?
1: Yeah, you feel free to probe. I'm not sure how much I can give you. Um, yeah. We're still collecting data. But yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. So, I mean, just, just like, just a little, like wet our appetite a little bit. Give us a little, yeah. teaser. what kind of like, uh, you know, what kind of populations are you looking at that are experiencing discrimination? I think it's so relevant right now, the yeah. way that the world's going right now and the way that things are, you know, yeah. there's so many populations that you can look at. So what are you looking at? And specifically, what are you kind of expecting? What are your hypotheses? You don't have to yeah, of course, them, for
1: sure, for sure. Um, so specifically, we're we're interested in racialized minorities. Um, this work that I'm talking about right now, um, some work that I've done in collaboration with some of my um, colleagues at University of San Francisco, University of California, San Francisco, um, was specifically looking at uh, Black Americans and their experience with kind of acute stress. What does that mean for their sleep? What does that mean for their memory? Um, some studies that. I'm also really interested in is looking at kind of rural urban differences. Um, so right. what does like urbanicity mean for sleep? What does rurality mean for kind of access to sleep and mm-hmm. how might that differ across these two populations? Um, and what are the different pressures that exist in those populations that might have impacts and, and kind of, Um, perpetuate sleep differences, and then what does that mean for their health, Um, specifically thinking about cognitive health, so things like Alzheimer's disease, trajectory towards cognitive losses, Um, and so that's, those are the kind of big picture questions that we're asking in different studies, Um, and then also trying to understand kind of what is the, what is the intersectionality of that, right, so what if we have kind of black individuals who are experiencing discrimination and marginalization, but they're also rural, right? So they're experiencing kind of some of the, the, the um, right. rural environment, lack of access to certain types of resources. Um, yeah. And then it's also not always kind of a victimized approach from my perspective. There's also so many strengths that you can bring. Um, mm. So is it protective or is, does it exacerbate differences um, or exacerbate health costs? Um, so that's kind of the, the approach that I've been taking so far um, in, in wow. thinking about that work
0: really really important work lauren that's like i I think it's the sleep literature is mm-hmm. like you said, it's so new, mm-hmm. but this is so relevant and so like such a priority now. Uh, mm-hmm. just in the you know, the political climate, the, the way the, the, the world climate right now with with COVID, with the added mm-hmm. stress and then discrimination on top of that for marginalized individuals, it's just it's great. I, yeah. I'm super excited to hear what you cut, what you find. In your
1: oh, work. thank you. I'm glad that I'm glad there's some interest.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, this is this is really really cool stuff, and I think like you know, it's hard to measure you know, discrimination mm-hmm. and marginalization. And sleep and and long-term health outcomes. So right. these are big, these are big questions you're asking and like mm-hmm. big projects. That's right. Um people don't, you know, people don't understand the the levels at which you have to go to get this 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 kind of data. So I'm mm-hmm. like, there's a lot of uh mm-hmm. interest on my end. I'm I hope to have you back and hear about what mm-hmm. your findings are on that if you're if you're interested later Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I I mean um man, I can keep going. I can keep going forever, Laura, but I I feel like I, I have to start wrapping it up in That's some good. way. Right. Um let's talk about a couple things. I'm gonna ask a couple of random questions, and then I want to kind of ask you some mis-misconceptions okay. And maybe you can give us some of those tips that you had uh yeah. previously hinted towards. Okay. Right. Um last question I'm gonna ask, because we we mentioned it briefly what do shift workers mm-hmm. or you know like nurses paramedics other mm-hmm. people that are working shift work that's rotating yeah. uh, you know working 12 hours on 12 hours off kind of thing what yeah. the hell do they do yeah. and how are they doing that and yeah. would you recommend that
1: yeah um that is forever a hard question for me because it's it seems like it's systemic it's mm-hmm. it's not an easy like it's not an individual prescription. Yeah. I can't yeah, say like, Oh, idea, right. Like, I can't say like, Oh, you know, just make sure your room is really dark when you get home. Like it's yeah. your, your body is literally sleeping on an opposite schedule that it would like to, mm-hmm. or you're not getting enough sleep in the 24 hour day. Right. It's one of the two things yeah. and there's no real solution to that <laughs> besides change the system in which this, this it exists. That's, that's really the only answer. Um, yeah. so for me, it's really hard to say that it's good or bad because it's really right. not an individual's choice. Right. Um, that kind of goes back to the access issue that we were talking about before, and what are what are kind of what are the external factors that control or determine access for different groups yes. of people is really is really kind of where that question lies for me. Um, mm-hmm. So it's hard. It's it's not um, biologically your body's not going to like it. <laughs> um, do your best. Get as much sleep as you possibly can in the, the hours that you have set aside to do it. Yeah. Give yourself really, really dark, 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 light, dark, spaces when you're trying to sleep and give yourself bright, 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 bright stuff when you're trying to be awake. Right. And that's probably the the best advice, the best thoughts I have on that, honestly.
0: Yeah, that's great. And, and that's, and that kind of is off of the, the idea of circadian rhythms and your body adjusting to the light, right? Is that kind of like yeah. where that recommendation's coming from?
1: For sure. Yeah, yeah. that's right.
0: Cool, cool. Okay, so Sorry for all the shift workers out there that are listening. Know,
1: it's so hard. I know. I, I know. It's so hard. It's so hard.
0: We appreciate the things that you guys are doing That's for right. us. We really do. Um, so. I'll give you one, one more question before we go into the miss. How, yeah. how much does, um, I guess, where do you think like sleep play, how sleep plays a role in um, like how rational you are as a person? Mm. <laughs> like, do you think that like, the randy for example with sleep deprivation and things like that when you're not getting enough sleep what are the like what are the take-home like negatives of not getting enough sleep like how can we scare our 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 listeners into like saying, get enough sleep, you know, get
1: more sleep. Okay. So the rational question is very interesting. So this is what I can, this is what I can offer. Um, it's not a specifically kind of like how rational are you as a person? What I'll say is that it's state dependent so that when you are sleep deprived, your resources, your tools, the methods that you have to make choices and decisions about the world that, you're, that you are experiencing will not be as, as full. Your, your toolbox will be a little bit less full. Um, and the, way I, the reason why I say that is because when we are sleep deprived, that very kind of human prefrontal cortex that we have that, you know, highly developed, more like, later kind of developing part of our brain that gives us this like rational, logical kind of ab- ability to kind of navigate the world and apply reason to it um, suffers. Drastically. Mm-hmm. And it has less control over the parts of our brain that are really a part of that emotion center and network, that part that's just kind of fight or flight, that part of our brain that's like survive, survive, survive at all costs. And so when you have less of that pre- that prefrontal cortex speaking to that amygdala, which is where that kind of more um, emotion centered self is, um, that it's great you're when you're when you have good sleep that they speak to each other they control each other you have both giving you input and right. you can navigate your world when okay. you are sleep deprived you have less of that PFC controlling that amygdala and then that leaves you with kind of more of an emotional driven fight or flight type of response mm. which is important for survival but our body shouldn't always just be in survival right you have to kind of be able to repair it and and get us to a space where we can be thriving and not just in survival and so the pfc helps that um, helps us make more logical choices and reason and reason um so that's why i I would say that you just kind of have less tools in the toolbox when you're sleep deprived so use your full self is kind of what i'm trying to say um sleep so that you can use your full self
0: yeah absolutely and 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 I mean the main takeaway here is that you know you don't have to be sleeping the same amount as your neighbor or your That's you know right. whoever you're like comparing to it's it's whatever you find is the most restorative for you. That's right. Um, I, I think it's great. I mean I and don't shame people. Don't shame. That's right.
1: right. You know I I say that all the time. I say prioritize your sleep and get rid of the guilt. Get yeah. rid of the guilt. There is no guilt with sleep. Sleep is as important to your health, your well being as eating, drinking, and you know so treat it as such um treated as such
0: absolutely absolutely Um, okay lauren so two two things left i I got no more questions for you i mean i probably do have more (laughs) questions for you but i'm gonna cap it here yeah yeah. um do you have any popular myths or misconceptions about sleep i'm i know there's lots there's so Um, many right we we probably (laughs) mentioned a couple already but if you have more yeah it's your four yeah
1: you know, I think I've mentioned them, right? There's like this. Yeah. There's a laundry list of ones with sleep, and that's why I love sleep so much because we all have our things. We all have heard the, the, the wives' tales. Um. Mm-hmm. So, um. Oh, does,
0: pepper, does peppermint on the forehead put you to sleep or something? <laughs> Isn't
1: that like peppermint on the part? You know, I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Are there are there natural herbs that are analgesics, which means they'll like you know encourage you to sleep more? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um. so, porf- so Soporific is what what we would call it if it was a herb that helped you sleep um, okay I love peppermint tea at night so that okay. there might be something there I don't know
0: there you go okay okay um, so not a complete mess all right
1: yeah so one thing one that I, I can use this one to give you some tips as well as um, circle back to the myth. so the yeah. idea that naps are bad for you right don't mm. nap or or you know whatever people who are kind of avoiding naps what I will say is that the timing of your nap is the most important so naps are not bad for you inherently but the timing of your nap is really important so back to our earlier conversation if you are you know, wanting to have a really quick pick-me-up nap, you want to nap less than 20 minutes and you want to nap before 3 p.m. if you want a quick pick-me-up nap. And that's a little bit dependent on when you go to bed and when you wake up, obviously. Um, But generally speaking, for someone who's going to bed around 11, waking up around 7, 8 a.m., that's kind of the timing of, of the nap you want to think about. Um, Adjust this based off of your sleep schedule. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: And then if you want to have a nap that's fully restorative, that you'll kind of get all of those aspects of sleep, you want to take a 90 minute nap where you'll get all of the four stages um, and you will wake up and not feel super groggy. So 20 minutes will keep you from being very groggy and 90 minutes will keep you from being really groggy. If you sleep in that 50 to 60 minute range, you're going to wake up and you're going to feel like a, you're going to feel that like, oh, my goodness, I can't get back out of bed. Right. Um, so that's kind of the the tips around naps. So naps aren't inherently bad for you. They, you can definitely utilize a good nap, a power nap, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Good to go. Just take it before 3 p.m. Same thing with uh, with your 90 minute naps. Definitely before fall asleep before 3 p.m. And, you know, really think about going that full 90 minute cycle.
0: Right. So. More is, an, is sometimes more is less in this situation. Then, it with right? naps
1: for sure. Yeah. So napping, I, I said before that stage two sleep is really good for kind of like restoring your attention processes, making you feel more focused. So right. if you take a nap for 20 minutes, you're going to get a good amount of stage two sleep in that nap. And that's yeah. going to kind of restore you. If you mm-hmm. go longer, if you go for 50 to 60 minutes, you're going to get a lot of that slow wave sleep in your nap. That's right. going to make you feel like, you know, a bus hit you. You're going to be so tired <laughs> when you wake up. Yeah. Um, yeah. So go for that full 90 minutes. And that'll get, bring you back to that original beginning of that cycle, which you can wake up and feel pretty good.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely, I've fallen victim to that many times before. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, with naps, do you recommend closing all the blinds in a dark environment? Or do you think that just napping with the window open doesn't matter? Like, what do you think with that?
1: you know i'm I'm a fan for like napping in the middle of the day with the sun on my face, so I yeah. can't you know i I mm. like a good uh sun streaming in laying out in the backyard type of nap, so I right. mean I think whatever works for you um mm. just make sure to set a timer so that you don't oversleep,
0: <laughs> yeah, on that quick note or a quick question, alarms for waking up just regularly do you think that that's the best way to do it, or do you think trying to figure out a way to kind of wake up whenever feels? Yeah. Appropriate.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I will say um, coming from a, coming for people who have the privilege to control their day yes, and, and have absolutely. the privilege to kind of navigate their morning and their night in the ways yeah. that they would like. I would 100% advocate for no, no alarm clocks. Um, right. But coming from a family member of people who worked a ton and worked multiple yeah. jobs and had very little control over their Don't days and laundry. their mornings. Yeah. yeah. Alarm clocks are, are going to be really helpful in, in training your body. So when, with, what we, I say when I say in training your body, basically, there's certain cues from your environment that can tell your body what time of day it is. And mm-hmm. alarm clocks are one of them. Um, yeah. And so if you have an alarm clock that tells you when to go to bed at night and alarm clock that tells you when to wake up in the morning, your body will start getting used to that such that even before your alarm clock goes off, you'll wake up. People start to yeah. feel that, right? They start to wake yeah. up even before the alarm clock goes off. Yeah, you're up five
0: minutes before the alarm clock goes off. That's right. Yeah.
1: And usually you kind of cuss yourself for that. but,
0: yeah, but I, do. I, I, do, I do the same thing. Yeah. But that's, right. a, natu-
1: that's a natural body's reaction to, to in-trained, being entrained to that timing.
0: Yeah, you do it enough. You know, you do it every day or you know five days a week. It's mm-hmm. it's gonna eventually just become accustomed to. Your body's gonna become accustomed to it. Okay. Really cool. Yeah. Okay. So good tips. Um, was there any other tips that you wanted? I think that that napping tip is gonna change me. I've I've been told that, but I've never actually implemented the twenty minute nap rule. Yeah. Because I'm like, I've got forty minutes. Let me just take my forty minutes and take a nap with, right. with the full forty, and it right. really doesn't actually help you. Uh, by doing that it actually is setting me back that's right
1: that's right we're gonna wake up a little sleepier
0: now do you set the 20 minutes (sighs) this is where i this is where i have issues with the 20 minutes right if it takes you five minutes to fall asleep is it 20 minutes or is it 25 minutes you should be setting an alarm for yeah
1: i would i would try to incur like include how long it takes you to fall asleep so if you're gonna if it takes you about five minutes i would give yourself a 25 minute timer
0: because then you're yeah if it takes five ten minutes to get to sleep and you put a 20 minute timer it's only 10 minutes that's right yeah, right. So, that, exactly. so, so give your give yourself a little bit of leeway as to what that twenty minutes will look like for how long it takes you to sleep.
1: Agreed. Yep. Okay, for
0: sure. that's good information to have because yeah. I've been cutting myself way too short, and that's probably why I was cranky. <laughs>
1: that's right. <laughs> um,
0: amazing. Is is there anything else, Lauren, that you would want to to bestow upon our listeners about sleep, um, about stress, or the way that we manage our sleep in any way, or any tips or anything like that?
1: You know, I, I I was looking, I had took like a couple of like handwritten notes. So I was just seeing if there's anything that we didn't touch on. And I don't, I don't think, think so. I think we kind of talked about it all. Um, Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, if anything, it's, I, I always tell people to like, you know, sleep is not a luxury, right? Sleep is something that we need and we require. And so treat it that way, you know, so just going to try to figure out ways to make sleep something that you think about as much as you think about what you're going to eat that day.
0: Absolutely, yeah. No, this is this is an amazing talk, uh, Lauren. I really uh, I learned a lot about sleep, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed learning more about sleep and and how we manage <laughs> our <laughs> lives. There's a lot more that we talked about than just sleep. So I'm That's really right. uh, I'm stoked that we had you on, and I'd love to hear more. And we'll keep we'll keep updated with uh, the new work you're doing with uh, sleep and stress and discrimination. I think it's such a cool line of work.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was such it was so much fun. I'm glad we got to like just kind of have like little thought projects. It was really great. Um, And I'm glad to have been on and chatting with you. And I hope you have a great rest of your day.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Lauren. And if anybody has any um, interest in connecting with you, either, you know, possible applicants to your lab to do work with you, or just to ask more questions about sleep, uh, is there any way that people can connect with you, Lauren?
1: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Mm -hmm. LN Whitehurst PhD, and you can always go to my faculty webpage at University of Kentucky and send me an email. I'm on email all the time. (laughs) Yes,
0: as we have to be (laughs) as professors and grad students. Um, That's amazing, Lauren. We will also, when we publish this, we will connect you, uh, your Twitter with the post, and we'll link you in and uh, make sure everybody's able to connect with you.
1: Sounds great. Awesome. Thanks, again. Thanks so
0: much again, Lauren. I really do appreciate it. This is Bye. fun. Thanks. And that's the episode. It was an amazing, uh, hour long chat with uh Lauren Whitehurst on sleep and cognition. And it was such a eye opening uh conversation on how we really do look at sleep in a different way and you know, how we can judge people. Uh, on how much they sleep and, and what we do to stimulate ourselves and to avoid sleep or to uh, you know optimize it and what we might be doing to to hurt ourselves. So uh awesome chat. If you if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a like on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and uh and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening to this. Um we really do appreciate that. Uh, otherwise Stay tuned. We got a bunch of stuff coming up this summer and some really awesome guests coming out uh, and we can't wait for you to hear them. If you have any suggestions for what topics you'd like us to cover, we're always there listening on Twitter and Instagram. Please just do send us a message at Brain Pod. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Bye.